Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, with so much talk of Canada heading into a recession early in 2023, alongside high inflation and interest rates rising, putting the squeeze on budgets, we find out how best to prepare yourself for whatever economic storms lie ahead. With Canada facing a labor shortage, a huge backlog in processing permanent residency applications is actually forcing some skilled workers with jobs here to leave the country. Yet another bureaucratic fiasco, but how do we fix it? We head to the BC town of Hope, where they're marking 40 years since the release of the first Rambo movie, First Blood. It put the community on the big screen and paved the way for BC earning its title as Hollywood North. But first, the inquiry into the government invoking the Emergencies Act in February is underway in Ottawa. Testimony begins on Friday with the first of more than 60 witnesses, but we got a good idea of the battle lines different groups will be using to counter the federal government's justification for the unprecedented move. But first off tonight, let's head to a different battle in Ottawa, where it was day one of the much-anticipated public inquiry into the federal Liberal government's use of the Emergencies Act. You'll remember it was invoked back in February for the first time since it became law in 1988, ostensibly to end weeks of protest blockades in Ottawa and elsewhere. Now, the legislation mandates that there be a public inquiry to look into this. The Prime Minister, though, spoke to the inquiry during a visit to Hamilton today, or about the inquiry at least. He would not speak to what would happen if the Commission were to find the use of the Act was unjustified. I think the important thing is for Canadians to understand uh, the the situation we were in and the choices we make. We didn't enter uh, into using the Emergencies Act lightly. We used it uh, with a sense of uh, it was the necessary tool at the time. Uh, We used it in a way that was measured and proportionate. uh, And we're really pleased that the Commission is going to be able to hear from all these witnesses. And that was why I offered to appear. And the Prime Minister will be appearing. You can already tell what the government's line in all this is going to be. You just heard it. Um, It is officially called the Public Order Emergency Commission. It's being presided over by former Ontario Superior Court Justice Paul Rouleau. There will be more than 60 witnesses testifying starting tomorrow, including, as you heard there, the Prime Minister, other members of Cabinet, high-profile protesters, law enforcement, and people impacted by the occupation. Uh, Earlier today, Rouleau and his staff started the proceedings by explaining how the inquiry will work. Uncovering the truth is an important goal. When difficult events occur that impact the lives of Canadians, the public has a right to know what has happened. But inquiries are also forward-looking. They seek not only to understand what has occurred in the past, but also to learn from those experiences and to make recommendations for the future. Justice Paul Rouleau there. Joining me now from Ottawa is Ryan Tumulty. He's the National Post's parliamentary reporter. He was there today as this all got underway. Thanks so much. No problem. So set the scene for us a bit. It sounded like it was a lot of lawyers, a lot of journalists, and a few familiar faces from back in February. Yeah, I would say that's about it. There there are about 20 lawyers. uh, Well, sorry, there are about 20 different groups or... um, you know, provinces or other uh, interested parties who have standing and thus have lawyers at the commission. Um, You know, it was an opening day, so there were a lot of opening remarks, a lot of sense of where people stand on this and where they're going to be coming from when we start hearing witnesses tomorrow. Um, But yeah, um, certainly getting a lot of attention in Ottawa too, because people have been waiting to see this uh, commission get underway. 
Yeah, I guess we heard from uh, some of those lawyers today. We're getting a sense of what their arguments are going to be. Um, how did that look or how did that sound? Yeah, so uh, quite a few, um, you know, the, the federal government who made this decision is represented only by one lawyer there. Uh, there is one lawyer that represents the government. Um, they obviously said that they feel they have solid grounds for having invoked the act, and they brought that up. Um, most of the other lawyers, though, I would say, come from groups that opposed uh, bringing in the act. There are groups um, of there are lawyers representing protesters um, and people from the Freedom Convoy. Uh, there were lawyers representing Alberta and Saskatchewan as provinces who both said they didn't think uh, invoking the act was necessary. Um, and you heard that from a bunch of other groups. So I, I would say like most of the lawyers today were saying, and you can tell this is going to be their argument, that invoking the act was necessary. There were a few surprises there, I gather, as well. The lawyer for the Ontario Provincial Police came out and said it mightn't have been necessary, which was different from what was being said uh, back in the winter. Yeah, it, was, uh, it wasn't the line. He hadn't been quite so clear about that before, saying that he didn't think he thought the measures that they had in terms of they already had with the emergency declarations by Ottawa and by Ontario uh, were enough. Um, you know, of course, the, the question there is that you know, if if those were enough, then why did the the protests go on for almost a week after Ontario declared a state of emergency? Um, and you know, the Ambassador Bridge was was closed for almost a week after yeah. that emergency declaration. So um, I think he'll face more questions. And you know, there's a whole bunch of officials from the OPP appearing later on. Um, so I think they'll face some questions if if their stance is that the Emergencies Act was necessary. I think they're also going to have to explain why so many streets and bridges stayed closed for a week uh, before it was invoked. Yeah, and similar questions, no doubt, for Ottawa police. I gather from reading that uh, the former police chief, the one who quit, Peter Stoley, right in the middle of the protests, he has a different lawyer. Uh, and he has, uh, and that lawyer spoke today a bit and gave a bit of an idea of what we might hear from the former police chief. Yeah, that lawyer gave us an impression that uh, Peter Stoley is going to have a lot of recommendations. Uh, about how things should be managed differently going forward. We got a strong sense that uh, he believes the Emergencies Act was, in fact, necessary. Of course, we'll hear more about that when he testifies. Um, and, you know, he suggested that this shouldn't be thought of as, as just a different type of protest, that this was an entirely different event. And he, his lawyer at least said that it, it represented a national security threat. Did you hear anything today? I mean, you've covered this extensively from uh, from the get-go. Did you hear anything today that uh, that stood out to you? Anything that came as a surprise? Something you didn't expect? I wouldn't say there were a lot of big surprises today. Like I said, we've known for about a week now what the full witness list would look like. Um, and a lot of these groups were taking stances that we expected. Uh, you know, the commissioner did talk about, and I think, you know, the full volume of what we're expecting is going to be quite interesting. Um you know, there are thousands of pages of documents, apparently, which will be submitted, um, you know, government documents and, and, and briefing notes and, and notes to the prime minister that apparently are all going to become uh, part of the record. Uh, so that's interesting. Um, you know, the commissioner talked a little bit about the time crunch that he is under. Um, mm -hmm. Most inquiries, they sort of take a look at the problem and, and then decide how long a t time the, the uh, commission should run for. Uh, the act is really clear that he only has until next February to deliver um, a report on this. Uh, so the time is really uh, ticking down on him, and he made that clear today. 
Yeah, that's lightning speed for an inquiry. Oftentimes, these things take ages. Um, you know, there's long delays between different sections of the inquiry. There's a long time for the report to be written. In this case, it's all condensed into really what is going to be, you know, a five-month period. So that's uh, astounding. He did make a call, I gather, today for this. Uh, he sort of set some ground rules. This cannot be a forum for people's grievances. This cannot be uh, a place to argue out one's different one's differences. This needs to be a forum where we do get to the bottom of why this was used and how it could could be better handled in the future. Yeah, he talked even about the, the, you know, the act has a very specific purpose. This inquiry is supposed to determine if it was appropriate to use the act and if the act was used uh, in the right way after it was invoked, uh, and then to make recommendations on how it should be changed. Uh, Cabinet suggested other avenues for him to look at, which include things like the role of misinformation, the role of foreign funding, things like that. Uh, he made clear that, you know, the commission will follow that and look at that. But he also made very clear that he's going to stick to the basic mandate of this commission first and foremost, which is to determine whether or not using the act was appropriate. I can imagine that many of the groups there, uh, there'll be people who'll be unhappy about the limitations of all this, but really how much, how much more scope can he, can he take given the time crunch? Yeah, I think that's going to be a real pressure for him. I mean, we're facing 65 witnesses in the next, you know, 30 days, roughly. So that'll be really interesting, especially considering I suspect some of those witnesses will be on the stand for an extended period of time, you know, the prime minister and and, and some others. Um, So it will be interesting to see how that plays out. Well, Ryan, I gathered they're going to start in Ottawa. Is that uh, is that what's happening? We're starting with sort of businesses that were impacted, people that were impacted, city councillors, maybe some of the police. Is that is that the story they're going to try and draw it out from local and then move out? Yeah, tomorrow we start with, like you say, local people. Um, there's a woman here who uh, is leading a class action lawsuit because uh, she lived near the convoy uh, in and among it, and um, a couple of other sort of local residents. Um, you know, their lawyer spoke today and talked a little bit about, you know, just being stuck in their homes, not being able to get cabs to their houses or go out for groceries because stores were closed and things like that. Um, and then, yeah, a couple of city councillors uh, will also be testifying t- tomorrow. Then we start to move into city officials and local police and then move up the police food chain. Uh, and it won't be towards the very end. Um you know, well into November before we start talking, uh, hearing from cabinet ministers and the prime minister. Yeah, there were there are a lot of them on this witness list. Uh, I gather, was Tamara Leach there today? I know that uh, some of the convoy organizers will also be testifying, quite a few of them, actually. Uh, how many of them were on hand today? Uh, I saw a handful of them today, and Tamara Leach was definitely there. Um, and yeah, they are part of the, they are so to testify. I would say they're probably midway through the, the hearings, maybe, um, you know, not next week, but the week after I was is where I would guess they'll come out. Um, I guess they weren't talking. <laughs> I imagine no, I they weren't talking. No one, I don't expect anyone to talk right now if they're going to testify later. Yeah, indeed. I mean, when you look at it, I mean, you covered this as it was going on. You obviously the the inquiry is mandated; it had to happen. Uh, but just in all the reporting you've been doing. What do we expect to get out of this? I mean, really, uh, is it going to come down to whether it was justified or not? Or do you think that uh, Justice Rouleau will find uh, we much more circumspect than that? Uh, he spoke today about having to look forward, not just back. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely going to have to make a determination on that. Um, you know, that's crucial. Um, and he has going to have to look forward. I mean, 
You know, the Emergencies Act uh, was written in, you know, the 19, late 1980s. It was a replacement for the War Measures Act. Hadn't been used since. Um, I, I think there might be some appetite for some recommendations and changes. Uh, you know, even if everything had gone perfectly, I think, and there was no controversy over the use of the act, I think there would be an appetite to look at how to change it uh, to reflect that, you know, we live in a different world than we did in, in 1988. Um and you might want to change a piece of legislation like this. So I think that will be part of it, um, and we'll just have to wait and see on there. Politically, um, there has been talk about what sort of consequences this government might face if it's found to have been unjustified. I, I can't imagine that will be, uh, the, the conclusion will be that stark, to be frank, having covered many inquiries in the past. There are tidbits, but they're not necessarily sort of black and white verdicts on these things. That's not really the mandate. But how much risk is the prime minister running here politically, do you think, by testifying, by having his entire yeah. cabinet testify? Yeah, I don't think any... Um... A uh, political leader relishes the opportunity to be held in front of a public inquiry like this. Um, certainly, it's not always worked out well uh, for political leaders. I'm thinking of, you know, Paul Martin and the Gomery inquiry and other issues like that. Um, but certainly, the you know, the prime minister uh, did not have to be dragged to this inquiry. He volunteered for it. Um, and the government is waiving cabinet confidence, uh, which is not something they normally do to release reams of documents uh, to the commission. Um, so I think they feel like they have a strong case and I mean, it's, you know, it's hard to look at it removed from there, but the public support, the polling that was out there at the time the act was invoked was very much, uh, on the side of invoking it. Um, so, you know, how much will the public care if the justice, uh, rules that this was inappropriate or that it went too far? I really don't know. There's no real precedent for it, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the, the protests ended, the blockades were removed, uh, so that was a success. And some of those other issues, like the freezing of bank accounts and so on, that I think will be really interesting to look into, whether those were, you know, whether those were necessary and whether they went too far and what sorts of, uh, you know, as you mentioned, so much has changed since the 80s, right? Uh, everything from crowdfunding mm-hmm. to so forth, you know, it's, these are the really, uh, you know, the, the issues that are gonna, I think would have to be addressed at this point. Yeah, and I think there'll be an appetite, too, for maybe trying to find some sort of half measure between what the government was doing and the Emergencies Act, because it is such a big sweeping measure. You know, uh, provincial emergency orders don't come with this much power and authority, but they do give them the tools needed to get certain things done. Um, and, And that might be an issue here. I mean, the federal government's choices at the time were you know, continuing to try to find more police officers to throw at the problem, or this. There was really no middle ground. Yeah. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to seeing your reporting as this goes on. And yeah, witnesses start tomorrow. Okay. Thanks very much. And you'll be forgiven for thinking that talk of a recession in the midst of high inflation and rising interest rates is a bit of a horror show all in of itself. We'll try and make that a little less scary for you. In this half hour, the International Monetary Fund is holding its meetings in Washington this week, and it comes as the organization is warning of tough times ahead for the global economy, saying the worst is yet to come because of that high inflation, rising interest rates, the turmoil caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, 
and COVID-19 disruptions that continue, particularly in China, where we get so much of our stuff from. And for Canada in particular, the IMF predicts a substantial further cooling of our economy uh, with growth of 1.5% in 2023, down from a projected 3.3% this year. They are not alone. The Royal Bank of Canada is also now saying our recession will hit sooner uh, with more job losses than first expected. Uh, They're thinking it's going to hit as early as the first quarter of next year. And they've said that high inflation and interest rates will shave $3,000 off the purchasing power of the average Canadian household next year, according to projections. So with household budgets already squeezed, more gloomy predictions about the future, how should you prepare for whatever lies ahead? To help us with that is Kelly Keene. She's a personal finance expert and author of nine bestsellers, including Protecting You and Your Money. Kelly, thank you so much for your time. Welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Ben. We're hearing a lot of the R word these days. The IMF was talking about it this week. Recession. They think the Canadian economy is cooling down. Um, I guess Canadians in general should be prepared. We're already facing high prices and inflation. Uh, We should be getting ready for a recession. How do we recognize one if it's on the way? Oh, I mean, this has been part of the news, right, for months. You know, is there a recession? What exactly is a recession? I think at the end of the day, The important question is to ask yourself, how do you recession proof yourself? Because that is the biggest, you know, the biggest issue that I'm hearing from a a lot of Canadians is they're worried about their industry, about their job, especially Ben, you know, if you've jumped ship recently because you're at the the lower rung, right? So um, will you be the first to be laid off? So the, the employment numbers are still really strong, but I mean, the fear of recession is, is, is looming. So, you know, you really want to be um, focused on trends. You want, I think the, uh, what's essential is to sit down with your employer. Like if you haven't uh, recently is to book a, 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 a meeting with your boss, with your employer, talk to them about your accomplishments, talk to them about your interest and desire to grow with the company like don't leave that unsaid and i think it's really important that you document your successes your achievements and use social media sites like linkedin to also toot your own horn i know it's very hard for people to do that but to create that thought leadership and let your network know what you're doing as well i think that's a great way to recession proof yourself You've also talked about uh, volunteering, expanding your skill set, getting into other things, just so you have a bit of a fallback position as well, that you're not entirely focused. And that's a luxury that most of us can't afford, given uh, our work schedules, but that you have something to fall back on if uh, that main source of income dries up. 100%. And I think you really need to look at your skill set. I mean, it's really, really hard. Like I'm talking with so many people across the country that their industries are disappearing. Like if you are a blockbuster. I don't care how good you are as a manager, an owner, or whatever, blockbuster died, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, it's just so important that you're just like really looking at, like markets are changing so fast. Jobs, industries are are changing so quickly. You know, Ben, you're in media. I have never seen more friends in media move positions than I have in the last year. Um, So it's just like, what can you do to increase your skill set? So it, like you said, if, if it's just not possible to volunteer and, and things of that sort, there's so many courses you can take online. There's so many things you can do to increase that skill set um, because I, I think it's absolutely essential. Like, you know, uh, 
you, you look at, uh, I, I mean, maybe we won't name names, but one of the major female broadcasters that yes. was uh, let go earlier this year, like how devastating is that, that you give 35 years of your life to a company and you get let go, but that, I, I mean, that is the reality for a lot of people. So it's having that, di- that diversification of your career, just like you would of your investments. Yeah. And, and then just in terms of preparing yourself financially, regardless of what your source of income is or how reliable it is, I imagine there are also ways to recession proof yourself when it comes just to your personal finances. I think we talked a lot about, uh, you know, household disposable income, uh, you know, debt as a as a proportion to household disposable income. I think it's up to like 180 yeah. percent in Canada now. Uh, which is really high, which is really high. I mean, people are walking a very fine line. How, what can you do? Uh, if well, you... yeah, exactly. And you're so right. Like Canada used to be the savers. And actually the Americans, when 08, 09 hit, they really got it. Like, because I, I was straddling media in the US and Canada, and there were so many foreclosure signs, and we just didn't in Canada. We just kind of kept spending, um, kind of kept using our lines of credit, uh, which in all fairness, you know, Tiff Macklem, the head of the Bank of Canada, said in his speech in July of 2020, interest rates are low. They're not going anywhere. They're going to stay low. So I, I just don't blame Canadians for, you know, renovating their home and things of that sort. But the fact is, is that most people are so stretched financially that we can't talk about budgets. We have to talk about where can you find more money. So let's dig into that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I love that conversation. I think it's so much more fun to sit down with your family and your spouse and yourself to say, there's money being left on the table. What is it? So number one, I love side hustles. And I've been talking a lot in media about quiet, quitting, you know, uh, this trend yeah. that's going on. And, and in all fairness, a lot of people just don't want to go back to the office, are, are, are just disenchanted with their work. So a side hustle is a really fun way to reinvigorate yourself. Uh, get that passion, those juices going, and also bring in some side income. Now, it has never been easier than it is now. Like it's never, you've never had all of the supports that you have to start an online business, for example. I I wish when I started my pursuit 17 years ago, these things existed. And, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, Square, they announced uh, um, an integration with Afterpay's Buy Now, Pay Later. And and if you are on their e-commerce site. And what's cool about that is, let's say you're selling, you know, holistic um, dog food or you're starting, I don't know, a jewelry company or something of that sort. You can offer this to your clientele where they can spread out their payments in four easy payments with no interest. Like, I love stuff like that that allows people to not throw things on a high interest rate credit card. So you as a side hustler or you as a consumer, those are really great options. I love found money. You know, we heard from CRA this summer that there was all these checks uncashed. Uh, yes. you, still, you know, if you still don't know if you had a check that maybe didn't arrive, just go onto CRA's website, log into your account. It'll show you. Um, also speaking of taxes, we are the only country in the world that you can go back 10 years on your tax returns to see if you've missed benefits or credits or if tax laws have changed. Um, you know, corporations have been doing this forever, but how do you do that and not hire an expensive accountant? There's a company called Family Tax Recovery. They use smart AI and technology to go through your tax returns. Best part is they don't charge you anything unless you get a refund. And then just very lastly, Ben, um, you know, 
Sun Life estimates that three to four billion dollars is being left on the table every single year in employees not leaning into their employer matching programs. So if right. you're an employee and you've got benefits, call up your HR department and see if there's free money that you're leaving on the table. Kelly, I'm never on that CRA list. I always check and I'm never, ever there. I have to, I have oh, to say. <laughs> me neither, Ben. I, I keep track of checks. <laughs> so when we look at this, I, I know it's easy to get dejected and think, you know, I was seeing surveys about how many people won't be able to afford to pay their mortgages. If interest rates keep climbing, we've seen American interest rates starting to climb even more now. It feels like we're heading into a tough time. So what should you do? I, I guess knowledge is power, right? You need to know where you stand. Yeah. Oh my gosh, so important. I'm so happy you teed that up, Ben. So here's a couple of things. So there was that Manulife survey a couple months ago that if interest rates kept going up, I think it was a quarter of Canadians said that they couldn't afford to stay in their home. You're right, knowledge is power. So for example, if you called up your bank, like actually you don't even have to call up your bank, let me back up. You, if you are in good standing with your mortgage, you can skip one payment per year without penalty. Yes, if you do this, it means you're paying your mortgage for longer and you're going to pay more interest over time. But if that puts a couple thousand dollars in your pocket and that's enough to help you maybe whether getting back to work or getting a side hustle as we talked about before the break or whatever, then then that could really help you out. Here's something I crunched the numbers. Um, Let's say you had $10,000 on your credit card. You were only paying the minimum payment. If you did nothing, let's say you're in a high interest rate credit card at 24%. If you did nothing more but called up your bank and said, get me into a lower interest rate credit card, and yes, all banks have them. So if you got into one, let's say for 12%, that's going to have no bells and whistles, no points, no rewards, but whatever. If you're only making the minimum payment, you don't care about that. You would, in that example, slash the interest that you paid by $4,000. Like this is the thing, when, when people are in financial straits, when they're in debt, there's still a shame and embarrassment surrounding that I wish there wasn't. Um, and, and our focus is narrowed. We literally can't see the options available to us. So, you know, call up your bank before you're missing payments. Even if you are missing payments, call them up. See what they can do to help. If you owe money on your taxes, don't be silent. Call CRA up. People are telling me business... You know, entrepreneurs, business owners, individuals, that CRA has been fantastic with, um, you know, uh, uh, payment arrangements and things of that sort. I guess the real takeaway, Ben, is that, you know, you've got to reach out. You've got to take the reins because, unfortunately, no one's going to come knocking on your door to help you figure all this out. And and I get it. It's hard. I mean, uh, I, you know, I, I'm nearing 50, but in my 20s, I was in a lot of debt, and I know how emotionally uh, draining and, and, and to your mental health and your physical health. But, but there always is some option. There's always options. Um, and if you just really, none of those work for you because you just can't do it, reach out to someone like a nonprofit credit counselor, an insolvency trustee. Uh, you can get some free advice. Doesn't mean you have to go down that path. Yeah, I imagine in this case, if you're silent, then you're just numbers, right? You're just debt if you're silent. And if, if you put your hand up, then what's the worst that can happen, right? Well, and the thing is, if you're silent, then what they're going to assume, your creditor is going to assume that you're not going to pay. So if you miss a couple of payments, but you intend to pay, or you're behind on something and you intend to pay, or you have a job around the corner, or you just tell them, look, you know, your business was affected by COVID, whatever, you're out there, you're working, you'd be pleasantly surprised that more often than not, your creditors want to work with you. 
They don't want to send you to a collection agency where they only get 50 cents on the dollar or less. They want to work with you. So do it before it goes into collections or before they actually take it to the next step. And that's much better than that. You know, the cycle that one gets into if you start borrowing off, you know, taking out new credit to borrow at high interest rates to pay off what you already owe, that sort of vicious cycle of high oh, interest rates. Exactly. Um, as we head into the, you know, it's easy to get despondent, <laughs> I think, but you sound like you always have, I mean, there's always, you know, every long journey, this is going to sound like such a cliche, but every long journey, even out of debt starts with small steps, right? So there's no reason to be all down and gloom, just try to see the positive or a way out. There's always a way out, right? There's always a way out. And it just starts with looking at where you are. And again, I know, Ben, that's hard. But like opening up, you know, opening up those credit card statements, so many people bank digitally, right? So get those in your calendar. Look at your interest rates as much as you might not want to. If you don't look at it, how can you see if there's a better opportunity or a better option or something else out there? Yeah, there's always a way. You just have to believe it. Like if I don't think that my sit-up is actually going to make me uh, healthier or eating the salad, you just throw up your hands and go, whatever, I'm just going to eat the whole pie. (laughs) Um, You know, you have to believe that these little steps do make a difference. And I'm here to say that they do. My books say that they do. And if you can't afford my books, you can get them free at the library. I give you so many examples of how these little steps really have taken a lot of people into incredible places that they never thought they could go financially. And you've mentioned too, this doesn't mean giving up all the joys of life either, right? You've talked about looking for savings on your cell phones, looking for savings on your cable bill, looking for savings when it comes to streaming services. There are savings out there that don't mean that you have to give up all the little joys of an afternoon out and so forth with your family and so on, because you don't want people to lock themselves in the house just to avoid spending any money at all. Oh, you're speaking my language, Ben. I actually did a series the other week called How to Afford to Buy More Shoes. And it was on Instagram and it was all about ways to save you money so you could buy more shoes. I am, you know, we need to get back to life. We've been locked up for two years. Uh, It's very important to your mental health that you are spending money, you are enjoying your money, but that you're not wasting it. So exactly combing through all of those, you know, trimming the financial fat while being mindful and having fun with your money. It is possible. Kelly Keene, thank you so much for your advice. Such a pleasure. Thanks, Ben. Well, the last half hour, we were talking with Goldie Hyder, the CEO of the Canadian Business Council, about uh, some of the labor shortages we're having in this country and problems with the immigration system. And I wanted to concentrate more on that in this half hour. It's no mystery, of course, that we're suffering through a labor shortage right now. Um, Goldie was telling me that uh, he's spoken to businesses where they're 10% down, big corporations, 10% short, they feel, on the amount of staff they should have. And what better way to help fill some of those positions than with skilled workers from other parts of the world, Uh, those who are already here, those who've come here to study, eager to make a living and perhaps build a life in Canada. But it appears that a backlog in processing times for immigration applications is having the opposite effect with thousands of skilled workers who would have qualified for permanent residence in this country under normal circumstances, having to leave because their work permits are expiring. To give you an idea, uh, this country sets targets for permanent residency or permanent residence at least according permanent residents, the target in 2020 was 341,000. But because of the pandemic and some changes, only 185,000 new permanent residence visas were granted. So, uh, you know, just a little over half. So where does this huge backlog come from? What does it mean for those left out in the cold? And how do you fix it? 
Joining me now is Mika Lalone. She's a partner at McRae Immigration Law in Vancouver. Thanks for your time tonight. Oh, thanks for having me. I, I don't imagine a lot of us were aware that this was happening, but this sounds like a, a huge, huge issue with that many people who should easily qualify for permanent residence in this country not being able to do so. It is a huge issue, and uh, the issue really surfaced, obviously, at the beginning of the pandemic when um, the government slowed processing times enormously and the borders were closed, and so they weren't admitting new permanent residents from outside of Canada who otherwise would have been able to come. And as a result of them falling seriously short of their 2020 targets, they sort of overdid it in 2021 and invited, in order to sort of make up um, this shortfall overextended themselves and invited um, a lot of people to apply for permanent residence under the economic class. They opened a new category. They dug deep into the express entry pool. Um, and as a result of that, there were too many people, too many applications in 2021, not enough staff to process, not enough spots available for these individuals to actually be approved. And so a lot of these applications that should have been approved in 2021 have now been rolled over to 2022. So there's a processing slowdown and a, and a basically pushing off the timeline for approvals into the new fiscal year in order to meet 2022 targets. But there's kind of a bigger issue here, and that's that because the government did overextend themselves in 2021, um, they put a pause even on inviting new uh, applicants who had been working in Canada to apply for permanent residence. So between September of 2021 and July of 2022, there were no new invitations to apply issued to individuals under the Canadian Experience class. And that means that there are a whole bunch of people in Canada who otherwise, pre-pandemic times, would have easily obtained that invitation to apply and transition to permanent residence from their work permits, um, are sitting still in this pool, uh, and their work permits are expiring, as you said. Yeah, and these are people already working. I mean, these are people with work in this country who would you would think would be the, the single most advantageous to give permanent residency to. Absolutely, because these individuals... Uh, most of them already have job offers. They've been integrated very well into the labor market. A lot of them have Canadian education. Um, their language skills are great. Uh, they're needed in a lot of really essential occupations. Um, and they have not been able to transition to permanent residence. And we are definitely at risk of losing these highly skilled individuals uh, who are just going to max out of their work permit status. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, my wife is from, from China. So when we were in, in the UK, there were some changes there in the way, uh, you know, permanent residency worked, or at least work permits worked. Uh, and yeah. and that was a problem. And then when we came here, permanent residency was fairly straightforward. But for those who got stuck in that pause, it must just be, I mean, it's just the luck of the, the bad luck of the draw, right, that you ended up uh, in in that category, looking, you know, that your your work permit's going to expire, and you're still waiting in this line. Absolutely. And I think that that uh, is a real issue in terms of the transparency and the predictability of our immigration system and individuals who are thinking about coming to Canada in the future, who have a lot to offer uh, Canada in terms of their um, work experience and education and skill set. 
you know, they're not necessarily going to look at Canada first because uh, there's no um, guaranteed plan to transition to permanent residence. And the government going forward has indicated that they are going to make some additional changes in 2023 to the way that permanent residence works and that they may um, specifically target certain occupations, certain educational backgrounds, certain language skills. And what that means is people just don't know, am I in one of those occupations? Am I, do I have the right type of education? And it used to be the case prior to the pandemic that individuals who were planning to come to Canada, let's say as international students or highly skilled foreign workers, they would be able to predict with some degree of certainty whether or not they were going to make the permanent residence cut before they even got here. So, you know, it was it was kind of an easy sell to say, okay, you know, come to Canada for a year, uh, work for your employer, then apply for permanent residence under Canadian experience class. You've got a high points threshold under this calculation system based on all of your factors. Um, You know, you should be a permanent resident within two years of arriving in Canada. And now individuals just don't have that certainty. Um, International students aren't going to have that certainty that if they do X, Y, and Z, then that will put them on the pathway towards permanent residence. So to me, that's a real weakness in our system right now that has to be addressed. For listeners who may not know how this works, when you apply for permanent residency in this country, you enter in this sort of this vortex where (laughs) getting updates on your application, finding out where you stand, whether you qualify is virtually impossible. You, You literally mail in this application and then keep your fingers crossed and you rarely, if ever, are able to speak to a human being to say, hey, where am I at? What's going on? What's happened to my application? Uh, it's really a very, very, I mean, if people in this country have never been through it, it is a very disconcerting and stressful process. You're, I mean, you yes. must have had, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say that in addition to that, um, you know, there are a whole bunch of people who are in that pre-permanent resident stage who have one year of Canadian experience. They've got good points on their language test scores. Um, They've got an educational credential recognition, and they enter into the express entry pool um, because they meet an eligibility criteria for one of the federal programs, and they're given another score in that pool. Um, and And then they're just all waiting. They don't even have an application that's currently pending Um, you know, let alone in some sort of backlog where they have no idea what's going on with it. They're just waiting to get that invitation to To apply. And that's, yeah, and that's probably to me the the biggest issue. Those who are in the system already who have gotten those invitations to apply and are waiting, they're frustrated, but they're also very relieved because they know that if they had attempted this, you know, a few months later, a year later, that they might have been out of luck. You know, um, uh, Mika, we've done stories, obviously, about about uh, Afghan translators trying to come to this country, about different mm-hmm. people who've been trying to come to this country. Uh, the inability to process these uh, applications, or at least allow for the number of applications that you that you said you're going to take, uh, seems like such an such. It seems like shooting yourself in the foot in such an unbelievable yeah. way. It's hard to imagine that we've let this happen. It is. And I mean, this sort of uh, goes directly to the 2021 uh, issue, which was that the government uh, overextended itself and was inviting um, at one go 27,000 people to apply in one day. And that's an enormous number of people for the processing capacity that the government has. And then in the same 
basically quarter, they invited another 90,000 people to apply. Um, and they just don't have the internal resources to process those applications or the technology to streamline it. So they've talked about dedicating a whole bunch of federal money to, um, I guess, increase their their resources through technology. I know they've just hired 1,200 people in the fall to help process applications. I think there's a concern on the part of applicants and lawyers that the more technology that you put into the system, the less um, the less room you have for nuance in, in an application. That's just an algorithm that's looking at your application, and if you don't tick something correctly, then you're you've lost your opportunity and you're out. So while it's good to hear that they are investing in technology, it sort of remains to be seen whether or not that technology is actually going to be user friendly and actually help uh, immigrants be- or prospective immigrants become permanent residents of Canada. And we're at real risk of having people having people's work permit. When a work permit expires and you don't have an invitation uh, yep. to apply for permanent residence, what happens? Do you have to leave? You in, in in most cases, yes. So there are some options. If you have a work permit, there are some cases where an employer can help you out by obtaining something called a labor market impact assessment application um, or approval for your role. That's about as fun as it sounds. It's uh, administratively complex. Processing times are long. You need to um, be able to evidence that there is a labor market shortage for that particular job. A lot of employers are willing to do that uh, for employees who are currently working for them whose work permits are about to expire, but a a lot are not. Um, And so, you know, you are at risk then of losing these individuals. A lot of the types of work permits that people are on um, are not extendable on their own. So, yes, they would have to leave until they have an application pending. There's no ability to apply to extend your work permit. How do we fix this? It seems like something that would have to be fixed fast. And how could it be done? Well, that's the the million-dollar question. The government has recently uh, put out... uh, a paper basically with five pillars talking about what they're going to do in 2023 to uh, improve the immigration system. But from what the five pillars indicate, it's not really going to fix things for individuals who are here right now. These new um, programs or the description of these programs are only going to be released in Uh, in the spring. And so in the meantime, you know, every day, every week, every month, people are losing status and and going home. So what I would um, encourage the government to do would be to issue temporary work permits to those individuals who are currently in Canada, whose permits are about to expire, who are sitting in the express entry pool that can't get an invitation to apply right now. Um, They've done that recently with some international graduates who graduated between certain dates, they've allowed them to extend their post-grad work permits. But to me, that's not enough. I think they need to go further and uh, and allow others as well to extend their temporary stay, who otherwise would be well on track to becoming permanent residents already. But I do think that there's a bigger issue here, and that's that that shortfall in 2020 has created kind of a an ongoing problem of we've currently got a heck of a lot more demand for permanent resident visas than supply. 
And so um, the way I think the government needs to address this uh, is to quickly, uh, as quickly as possible, uh, roll out their plan and advise um, possible immigrants or prospective immigrants that, uh, you know, this is what's going to happen and and we'll extend your work permit for another 12 months. But beyond that, you know, you're going to have to find work in elsewhere. And that gives employers enough time to potentially transition um, away from that particular worker as well, if there's no way they're ever going to be allowed to become a permanent resident. Yeah, I mean, it feels like there must be. I mean, I know behind every application or every hope for permanent residence is a family, is a story, is someone waiting somewhere for good news. But you would think mm-hmm. there would have to be a way to prioritize those who are already here in this country working. That's right. And, you know, when the government recently in July started inviting um, individuals to apply under express entry again, uh, they had the category open, I should clarify, for individuals who had a provincial nomination, and that's kind of a joint application between an employer and an employee. That was still going, but very limited numbers being invited. So when they reopened this whole system up again in July, they included in these invitations individuals who were um, applying from outside of Canada who have likely never, ever worked in Canada before. And that program, it's called Federal Skilled Worker, that had actually been on pause since almost the beginning of the pandemic. And it's a bit of a head-scratcher as to why, um, you know, they're including individuals who are outside of Canada in in these draws, given that there's so many people here uh, who who aren't able to, to qualify at the moment given their point score. So if they if they kept that category closed from overseas economic applicants, I'm not talking about spouses or right. um, refugees. I'm just talking about the economic class and simply focus on those who are in Canada who have already contributed to the labor market or graduated from a Canadian institution. That would help a bit. Michael alone, uh, the, the scratching of the head would, would leave me with no hair. So I appreciate your time today. <laughs> Thank you so much for clarifying uh, what is a big problem. Thanks for having me. Well, back in the early 80s, horror movies were very, very popular, and so were action movies. But action movies took on a whole new, in some ways, a whole new genre, thanks to one film in particular, one very successful film released back in 1982, 40 years ago this month, as it turns out. Um, And... If you are a Rambo enthusiast, you perhaps know all about the links that the town of Hope, B.C. has to that 1982 film. And many of them were there over the weekend to celebrate the 40th anniversary of First Blood, as the film is known. Um, It was mostly filmed in the community way back in 1981 and 1982, and it has become something of a shrine for the film's fans. Of course, it's set in the fictional town of Hope, Washington. Isn't that always annoying? When they set something, they could have just set it at Hope PC, couldn't they? I suppose it wouldn't have made as much sense, given the um, the plot line. But Hope Washington was, in fact, Canadians will know, um, that some of the most iconic scenes were filmed in the very real town of Hope, BC. Here is the trailer from back in 82. John Rambo, a drifter, just passing through their town. Morning! Headed north or south? North. Now jump in. I'll make sure you're heading the right direction. Huh? You got some place I can eat around here? There's a diner about 30 miles up the highway. Is 
there any law against me getting something here? Yeah, me. He's a great actor. I always really like Brian Dennehy uh, and Sylvester Stallone. The rest, as you if you've seen the movie, you know what happens after this. Um, but it's been a lot of celebrating and hope for good reason. And joining me now from Hope BC is Brian McKinney. He is the Visitor Center team lead at the Hope Cascades and Canyons Visitor Center and Museum. Brian, I hear you, you're, you're hoarse from all your weekend celebrating of the 40th anniversary. Oh, man. Hey, Ben, good evening. Yeah, I, I asked your producer, I said, I don't know how good my voice is right now for radio. I, I sure don't want to chase away any of your listeners. But uh, I, I hear that trailer and I think to myself, it's a good thing he didn't grab a bite to eat or you and I wouldn't be having this conversation right now. That's right. The, the, the very short version of Rambo, he has the bite to eat, gets on the bus and moves on. Right? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So so how did, I, I, just to go back to the history a bit, how did uh, Rambo, because I know some of the history of how long it took them to make that film, how did the whole crew wind up in Hope, B.C.? Well, we were, um, we were actually shortlisted um, from about 20 locations, uh, like literally around the world. Then it got narrowed down to about the top 10 uh, around North America and um, narrowing in on sort of, Oregon Coast, Pacific Northwest, Washington State. And then we got shortlisted into the top five where we, uh, we were battling for some film business for our, with our friends in Squamish, B.C. and uh, some other spots in the interior of the province. And the script was calling for, you know, the rugged terrain, the mountains, the rivers, the cliffs, the dreary weather, the low clouds the unpredictable weather, the rain, you know, this type of thing. And it was actually, um, when the scouts reports came in, the information was gathered. It was actually Sylvester Stallone that made the final decision. And he said, it looks like we shoot in Hope Canada and the rest is history. It certainly is. I understand when they turned up, though, the weather was unseasonably nice, which is always the way it works in BC, isn't it? Well, you know, it's it's a crapshoot, obviously, you know, doing any sort of production work um, in BC at that time of the year. As a matter of fact, that's kind of what drove it to be so far behind in time and so much money over in budget in that they wanted to be wrapped up in about four and a half weeks. They got into town on November 1st, and the last person didn't leave the community until the 28th of December. And the fact that they were so far over time budget and over money budget is a whole different uh, kind of a subplot to the filming of the movie of itself. But uh, just another storyline behind the scenes and what makes yeah. this movie just the legend that it is today. Was it Richard Credo they had to use less of because he had something in his contract that he had to be paid more if he had to spend more days on set? It was one of those stories, was it not? Yeah, well, it was funny because, of course, you know, the, the legend of Kirk Douglas and, you know, him having his differences with uh, Sylvester Stallone and, and Ted Kotcheff, they couldn't quite agree to the ending. So Kirk basically said, well, I'm up and out and I'm out of here. And, <laughs> uh, you know, Kirk Douglas got a call from his agent. We need you up in this little town called Hope, Canada. They had him on a plane from L.A., he didn't know where he was going, what he was doing, and what role he would be playing. And as a matter of fact, he actually didn't have the time to get fitted for his outfit. He actually ended up wearing Kirk's uh, colonel outfit. 
and it was a little bit snug on him. And as as the story goes, uh, Richard Crenna actually had to have a script coach off to his left hand side reciting all the lines because Richard just wasn't he just wasn't ready. But the but the you know the role on screen, the performance on screen, was just award winning, and the the relationship yeah. between the characters is just legendary. What was it? Are there stories from back then? I mean, so Stallone was already a big star by then. He made the Rocky movies, and uh, here he was in Hope, BC. I mean, people must have it must in a smaller community, a movie set like a movie shoot like that would take up a lot of space. Well, you know, Ben, like movie making back in 1981 wasn't really like it was like what's going on here? Like what is all this? And you know, and and uh, so it was so brand new that, you know, I can remember being as a little kid, I was born in Hope, and we were, I was 13 years old. And, and as a matter of fact, it was kind of cool because a lot of the school kids would be allowed out on school trips. So during daytime filming, we'd be right down, like literally, we watched him pull the guy off the stunt bike probably about 10 times. And oh, I just, just watched that scene. Cool. <laughs> that breakout scene takes place. There's about 40 of us school kids behind this little nylon rope literally about 15 feet away watching him do that scene over and over and over again. And it's so it just brings back such school, uh, school memories for me. And, uh, I just, you know, and like I say, the fact that I get to sell and tell it for a living now is, uh, it's just so cool for me. Yeah. all oh, the eighties, Brian, hey, can you imagine just a little nylon rope and a bunch of kids watching that go on right in front of a movie shoot with one of the more famous actors in Hollywood at that point, uh, it was a different era for sure. Tell me about the attraction. I mean, I think a lot of people watch the movie. I hadn't seen it in a very long time actually. Um, but it's hope has really become a bit of a, a, a place where people, fans of the movie make pilgrimages to put to hope. Uh, when did that get started? Was that something that's relatively recent or, or was that going on for years now? Yeah, we've, we've been celebrating the release of the movie. Of course, it was re- uh, released to an international audience in October of 1982. So since about the 20th anniversary of the release, we've done something. And um, so, you know, every five years, of course, with the help of technology, um, the fact that it was introduced to a broader audience around the world, younger audience. It's now, of course, as you know, generated this kind of cult-like type style following. And the, and the, 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 the profile of the fan is not just, you know, older males, you know, and they're, you know, it's like, like the, us. the fan base <laughs> like is us. Like young, yeah. as young as five. Yeah and as old as 95 and and it's just it's grown and grown and all we do since then is let the town just kind of do its thing geographically not a lot has changed in hope bc and it's pretty well with about 10 different iconic locations the exact same view through the it's the exact same view through the lens today as it was through the lens in november of 1981 so to the fan they're standing in the midst of their most famous shot scenic location of their favorite 80s action Stallone film. So it's like a moment in time for them. And we just let the town do its own thing and we just sell and tell it. Yeah, you couldn't say that about many movies shot back then. If you were to go to New York or to San Francisco for where the Dirty Harry movies were shot, I mean, every lot a lot has changed. But it must be amazing for fans. Uh, and you get fans from right around the world, too, who come to to, to see it. Oh man, you know what? Like, like at our at the at our visitor center, of course, 
We get over 15,000 inquiries a year directly to the movie. So um, that means 15,000 parties from around the world come to Hope specifically because this is where their favorite action alone film was shot. So I understand in the town, now you did a bunch of the reason you're horse, I should mention this again, is because you spent the whole weekend telling these stories to people. You know, a lot of events happened over the weekend. Uh, but what are some of the things in the town that you did over the weekend as well that are, as, are, are there permanently to, to mark uh, that famous uh, eight weeks back or nine, or nine weeks, I guess it was back in, uh, in 1981? Well, you know, this year we just had, oh man, like we, we just brought, we, we stepped it up. And our community stepped up big time. Our sponsors, um, you know, there's this funny little thing that goes on, Ben, in our community about some of the longtime Hope folks that, you know, it's like, you know, there's that little bit of that eyeball rolling effect. It's like, okay, you know, like, let's move on. This is an yes. old move. But, you know, they stepped up. We, we, we you know, <laughs> we, we, we tucked our eyeballs in and we stopped the eyeball rolling for a few days. We welcomed the, the fans. We had Rambo karaoke. We had Rambo paintball. We had Rambo skateboarding. We had uh, Rambo lookalike contest. We had, um, of course, we had the, the celebrity component. We had Patrick Stack, who, of course, played the, the, um, the comedian, uh, Lieutenant Clinton Morgan. We were right. honored to have members of Brian Dennehy's family in town Saturday afternoon for an unveiling, a wood carving unveiling of Sheriff Teasel. We had the bad guy, Stephen Chang, who, of course, plays the Vietnamese commander in the movie. We had Dietmar Pohl, one of the most legendary movie knife creators in Hollywood and in the world. He actually was responsible for making the iconic knife called the Heartstopper. And Rambo fans will know that that was in the fifth installment, and that's the famous knife that John Rambo, of course, uses to kill the bad guy of the drug cartel in the fifth installment. The weather was unbelievable, and of course, no Rambo event could be topped. We had to bring a 52-ton tank into town in the middle of Wallace Street on Sunday at noon and drive over a whole bunch of parked cars. The fans brought it. The the celebrities brought it. Hope BC was the place to be. I understand we trended for about two, almost two days straight. Um, We just had coverage from anywhere, everywhere from Entertainment Tonight, the Daily News, the LA Times, the New York Post. So why I'm horse is just my. I just really didn't know who I was talking to next. (laughs) Yeah. But it was, well, you know, it was a blast. We saved the best for last, uh, Brian. We saved the best for, for last. Well, I'll let you rest up that voice. Congratulations. Thank you so much for shedding some light on the connections between Beautiful Hope BC and uh, and the first Rambo film, which many people will have seen. It was a huge hit. And uh, it's had a real uh, reconsideration by even the critics these days, too, who've come to appreciate what the film set off, a whole new sort of form of action film back in the day. Brian McKinney, thank you. Thanks for your time, and it's been my pleasure.